0: For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Reading you're listening to or watching Campus Firmus. I have spent a lot of time engaging with conservatives over the years about my uh, Christian nonviolence views. Conservatives tend to be big supporters of the military and the police and believers in gun ownership and self-defense. So uh, that's no surprise, Uh, but in light of some of the protests over the police murder of George Floyd turning into riots in the last weeks, I'm seeing a lot of my liberal friends also now justifying violence as a legitimate tool of bringing about social change. So I'd like to look at scripture, reason, and experience to ask when it comes to protesting the state, why nonviolence? I'll start with scripture. Jesus famously told us to love our enemies, and that when we are slapped on the right cheek, to turn to our aggressor, the left, and that if our enemy uh, forces us to walk a mile, we should go with them two miles. It's a common rebuttal from conservative Christians that this attitude of nonviolence toward enemies applies only to personal enemies and not national ones. However, the context of going two miles with an enemy instead of the required one is that in the Judea of Jesus' day, a Roman soldier could demand that a conquered person carry his pack for only one mile, an enlightened practice at the time, which penalized the soldier for demanding any more, but it still communicated who was the conqueror and who was the conquered. So, of course, the Romans were national enemies to the Jews. So what's going on here with the the pack and the, the two miles? Well, the late biblical scholar and activist Walter Wink argued that Jesus is presenting here a third way between violence on the one hand and submission to oppression on the other. So what would happen uh, in this example when the Jewish follower of Jesus refused to give the pack back to the Roman soldier, but went with him another mile? Wink writes, quote, but why walk the second mile? Is this not to rebound to the opposite extreme, aiding and abetting the enemy? not at all. The question here is how the oppressed can recover the initiative, how they can assert their human dignity in a situation that cannot for the time being be changed. The rules are Caesar's, but not how one responds to the rules. That is God's, and Caesar has no power over that. Imagine then the soldier's surprise when, at the next mile marker, he reluctantly reaches to assume his pack, 65 to 85 pounds in full gear. And you say, oh no, let me carry it another mile. Why would you do that? What are you up to? Normally he has to coerce your kinsman to carry his pack, and now you do it cheerfully and will not stop? Is this a provocation? Are you insulting his strength, being kind, trying to get him disciplined for seeming to make you go farther than you should? Are you planning to file a complaint to create trouble? From a situation of servile impressments, you have once more seized the initiative. You have taken back the power of choice. The soldier is thrown off balance by being deprived of the predictability of your response. He's never dealt with such a problem before. Now you have forced him into making a decision for which nothing in his previous experience has prepared him. If he has enjoyed feeling superior to the vanquished, he will not enjoy it today. Imagine the hilarious situation of a Roman infantryman pleading with a Jew, aw, come on, please, give me my pack back. The humor of this scene may escape those who picture it through sanctimonious eyes, but it could scarcely have been lost on Jesus' hearers who must have been regaled at the prospect of thus discomforting their oppressors, end quote. Wink argues something similar is happening uh, when Jesus speaks about being struck on the right cheek, uh, to be struck uh, or to be slapped backhandedly, um, which is what would be happening if you're struck on the right cheek. Uh, right cheek. Right <laughs> cheek. Um, is, um, is to be demeaningly insulted by a conqueror who sees himself as your superior. Why then, Wink asks, does Jesus counsel these already humiliated people to turn the other cheek? Because this action robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. The whole point of the back of the hand is to reinforce the caste system and its institutionalized inequality. The oppressor has been forced against his will to regard the subordinate as an equal human being. This response is an act of defiance well Jesus exhorts as an end quote that was end quote for wink there while Jesus exhorts nonviolent activism in his sermon in this sermon uh, he rejects violent activism completely in other places so for example he tells Peter in Matthew 26:52 that all who take up the sword will die by it and he tells Pilate in John 1836 that his kingdom wasn't earthly so his followers don't fight like soldiers do The Apostle Paul was obviously inspired by this attitude in Jesus because he wrote that our fight against oppression was really with spiritual powers, so our weapons can't be carnal weapons like swords, and that we should do good to our enemy in order to, quote, heap burning coals on his head, end quote, thus overcoming evil with good. But as I said, there are more than just biblical reasons to reject violence and to engage in nonviolent activism instead. Gene Sharp, former professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, wrote a series of books under the heading, uh, The Politics of Nonviolent Action. There's part one, if you're watching. If you're listening, you didn't see anything. He notes that our philosophy of political power has mostly been all wrong, and that's why we think violence is necessary for any significant social change. Because we tend to think of people as existing on the goodwill of government, We imagine that government is near and vulnerable and that only the most radical and violent solutions can shift it. But the reality is reverse. Governments, Sharp writes, quote, depend on people and political power is fragile because it depends on many groups for reinforcement of its power sources, end quote. As Montesquieu wrote, those who govern have a power which in some measure has need of fresh vigor every day. So the problem is not that the state is so powerful, but that people obey. Thus, Sharp writes that obedience is at the heart of political power. In other words, we consent to be ruled, which means that political power is actually our power. If we don't consent, the state has no power at all. Thus, Adolf Hitler declared that, quote, one cannot rule by force alone. The conquered must be convinced that we are the victors, end quote. How does the state convince us that they are the victors? Well, the state gets obedience from one part of society, excuse me, by convincing them that the state is necessary and that their livelihoods are wrapped up in state power functioning at peak, at peak performance, <clears throat> then uses that part of society, it's police, military, and other agents to help it rule over everyone else. The small number of enforcers succeeds because of our fear of them and because of their organization and monopoly on violence, which guarantees that they not be held accountable for wrongdoing. To fight them outright would likely be suicide and would not guarantee that the right side will win, but only the most successful at using violence. Nonviolence, non consent, and civil disobedience, on the other hand, puts the state at a disadvantage because it's unfamiliar with these tools and doesn't know how to respond to them. And when we do win, as many nonviolent efforts have, we build a better society than what came before it. Not one based on bloodshed, but on compassion and moral strength. But those who rebel with the sword, And build a system on revenge, usually create a more terrible regime than what came before it. And this brings us to the final point. We should eschew, 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 that's a very hard word to pronounce, eschew violence. We should reject violence because our enemies may not be evil, but could simply be mistaken. Though, in either case, whether evil or just wrong, they could become our friends. Instead of doxing and canceling people who say the wrong things or even cutting off family members because they have malformed views on something, what if we love them enough to change their minds? After all is said and done, we have to live with people whom we may not always see eye to eye with. We can't do that by trying to destroy them. Instead, as Paul said, we should heap burning coals on their heads by shining the light of Jesus so brightly that they can't bear it. Do not be overcome by evil, dear listener or viewer, but overcome evil with good. Thank you very much.